Hello and welcome back to Tectonic, a show in which we look at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. In this episode, we hear from a researcher and investor in the field of artificial intelligence. AI and the rise of the internet is creating unprecedented levels of concentration of power where because software and tech and AI has infected or is infecting almost every other industry, we're now creating winner-take-most or winner-take-all dynamics. That was Andrew Eng, who has led AI projects at Google and Baidu. He's also co-founder of Coursera and an adjunct professor of computer science at Stanford University. He came into the FT to talk to me about his concern that AI technology is concentrating wealth in the hands of a few and why we need to spread AI skills and understanding across society. So, Andrew, you have been a leading researcher in the field of AI for some time at Stanford, at Google Brain, at Baidu, and you also helped set up Coursera, the online education company. And since last year, you've also been an investor in the field of AI at AI Fund. So you have a wonderful purview of what's going on right across the whole field of AI. Can you tell us what do you think is the best way to conceptualize AI? How can we understand what it does? AI is the new electricity. Much like the rise of electricity started about 100 years ago, AI today has a surprisingly clear path to transforming every industry. We've seen it transform large tech companies, but I think today, maybe some of the best untapped opportunities for AI lie outside the software and tech industry. Despite all the hype and excitement about AI, some of which is justified, it turns out that 99% of the economic value created by AI is through one type of AI, which is called supervised learning, which just means learning input to outputs or A to B mappings, such as input and email and output is it spam or not, or input an English sentence and output a translation to French, or input a picture and tell me, does this picture have a cat? Or input an ad and tell me, is the user likely to click on it? And by finding the right application scenarios for these input-output mappings, this turns out to be incredibly valuable. And a lot of the work that is still coming for AI is to take this and other technologies and to find the right use cases for them in all of these industries. And in what domains do you think it is going to have the most impact? I find it hard to name an industry that I don't think AI will have a huge impact. In fact, my friends and I used to challenge each other to name an industry where we don't think AI will have a big impact and have a hard time doing so. Did you find one? My best example was the hairdressing industry where I thought, you know, can you get an AI to cut hair? That seems hard. Although one of my friends, after I said that on stage, stood up in the audience and pointed at my head and she said, well, Andrew, most people's haircuts, I can't get a robot to do that. But your haircut, Andrew, I could totally program a robot to do that. (laughs) Cruel. So you're saying that it's really a general purpose technology that can be applied in almost all narrow domains. But you're a lot more sceptical about the progress that we're making towards artificial general intelligence. Could you explain your thinking on that? Almost all the progress I'm seeing in AI is in artificial narrow intelligence or ANI. And this means AI that does one thing, ranging from trying to diagnose from an x-ray image or trying to serve more relevant content to users or trying to empower self-driving cars. These narrow intelligences or one-trick ponies are incredibly valuable when you can find the one trick for the pony to do. 
The other type of AI is artificial general intelligence, and this is the hope that maybe someday computers could do almost anything that a human could do. I'm seeing almost no progress to what AGI, artificial general intelligence. I would love to get there someday. I hope we'll have the breakthroughs needed to build AGI someday, but I don't think any of us know whether it'll be you know a few hundred years until we get there, or maybe even longer. So you think really there's a confusion of terms? Would we be better off talking about? AI, in the general sense, as computational analytics, would that help to remove a lot of the emotion from the debate? I have not heard the term computational analytics as an alternative to AI. <laughs> I think the term AI is probably here to stay, and it is automating a lot of things that were previously things that you know only humans could do. One way to think about AI is that it is automation on steroids, and one rule of thumb I've given to a lot of teams is almost anything that you could do. With less than a second of mental thought, we could probably now or soon automate. Such as look at the picture and tell me if this is a nice-looking picture. Actually, it turns out AI can do that.、It、takes you less than a second. We're pretty good at building learning algorithms to do that. And I find that when executives and when engineers look around the company, we can often find tasks that you as a person can do in less than a second of mental thought, and those are often ripe candidates for automation. Now you worked at Google Brain and at Baidu, and you helped turn both of them really into AI-led. Organizations, what were the lessons that you learned from working from these companies, and how do you think they could be applied in other companies, organizations, sectors of the economy? I recently published online an AI transformation playbook, and the AI transformation playbook lays out some of the principles that I think will help companies become good at AI. One of the things I learned leading the Google Brain team many years ago was. Start of a pilot project and try to deliver a quick win as soon as possible. At the start of the Google Brain project, there was a lot of skepticism within Google and around the world in deep learning. And so, my first internal customer was the Google Speech team. And Speech, you know, is a nice project in Google. It's actually not the one that has the biggest impact on the company's bottom line. So, they're not back then. But by making the speech team more successful, I started to have other internal allies and other teams want to work with my team, the Google Brain team as well. So my second internal customer was Google Maps, helped make Google Maps data more accurate, and then start to talk to other teams, including the ads team. So one of the lessons I've learned is. In order to build internal momentum, it helps if you can deliver a quick win and then use that to get the flywheel going and then to do bigger and bigger projects. Your first AI project doesn't need to be the biggest one, and the AI transformation playbook goes over kind of a five-step from initial pilot projects to building a team to running training to work on AI strategy to aligning comms to help companies almost in a step-by-step -step process become good at AI and hopefully become more valuable along the way. Now, do you think it's going to be the big tech? Companies,、uh, I think the big nine, as、uh, Amy Webb has called them, are absolutely going to dominate every field of AI. Or do you think there is more opportunity for smaller companies to deploy this technology in different domains in order to compete? With the rise of a disruptive technology like AI, I think there are opportunities. For many, many large companies, not just the large tech companies, but for large non-tech companies as well, as well as for startups to thrive. You know, when look at the last major disruptive rise in technology, say the rise of the internet, there were some quote startups that did well. So Google, Facebook, Amazon were among the startups at the time that wrote the rise of the internet. But there are also incumbents, Microsoft and Apple, that were not internet companies that became great internet companies. So to the rise of AI, we're seeing a few great companies like Google. And Baidu, as well as others, you know, Facebook and so on, become very good AI companies. But there'll be other companies as well, large companies that will become good at AI. 
I'm excited by the prospect of helping healthcare companies and agricultural machinery companies and manufacturing companies become good at AI and help them become more efficient and more valuable along the way. The AI transformation, I don't think, is limited just to today's large tech companies. I think every industry, hopefully, will have uh, multiple winners. And clearly, you're betting on that at the AI fund, which, as I understand it, you're working with very early stage companies to deploy AI in different areas. Can you tell us more about that? What are you doing? AI fund is a startup studio that creates startups from scratch using AI capabilities. I think that AI startups should be built differently than traditional startups. And at AI Fund, we're very good at systematically identifying, validating, and executing on ideas. So we hold ourselves accountable for working with a team to brainstorm the ideas, to screen out and validate ideas, to build the initial team, and then to launch the startup on this way. The other team I'm spending most of my time with is Landing AI, which aims to help existing incumbents become good at AI. So whatever I did at Google and Baidu, building up the AI teams, helping them embrace modern AI capabilities, I think we can help a lot of other companies as well including companies that are not today viewed as software tech companies, become good at AI. And I hope this can maybe drive a lot of GDP growth in different countries, as well as help the companies become more efficient and effective. Now, one of the arguments saying that it would be very hard for these small companies really to acquire scale is that it's all about access to data, that the Googles, the Baidus, the Tencents, the Facebooks have harvested an enormous amount of data, which gives them an enormous advantage when it comes to deploying AI. Is that right, do you think? How can small companies compete in terms of gathering data and using that data? The AI community has done a good job putting out the message that data is valuable, and that is true. But data is verticalized. And one of the most exciting upcoming trends in AI I'm seeing is the rise of small data, where you can get things to work with a small amount of data. So first to the big data point, it's true that I would not recommend most startups try to build a web search engine today because the large web search companies, including Google, Bing, Baidu, Yandex, have so much data on what users do and do not click on these businesses are very defensible because their AI lets them build a better web search engine than what almost anyone else could easily build with today's technology. Having said that, data is very verticalized. So just because you have a lot of data on web search does not mean that you could easily apply that data to improving agriculture machinery or improving finance. And so different companies will have different data assets usually in their vertical. And if they embrace AI fast enough, this will give them plenty of opportunities to build defensible businesses in these other verticals. The other exciting trend is small data. It turns out that today, if you have a million images, you know, decent size, there are maybe dozens of teams, maybe small hundreds of teams that can build good computer vision systems. But if you have a hundred images, it turns out to be much harder but there are teams today that can get AI to work even with small amounts of data. And this is important. For example, I'm doing a bunch of work in manufacturing. And so we can use computer vision to look at maybe the devices you have in your pockets to tell if there's a scratch or a dent in them. Fortunately, I don't think any company has manufactured a million defective cell phones. So we don't have a million pictures of scratch things. But with just 100 images, I found uh, at Landing AI that using small data, uh, novel technologies, we can often get pretty good results. And this is important for enabling AI to enter new verticals as well, where there just isn't that much data. So in a relatively open field at the moment, say healthcare, do you think it's likely that the Googles or the Apples would dominate that field in deploying AI? Or do you think it's possible that a whole new generation of emerging healthcare AI companies will 
be the people who really drive that industry forward. In new verticals, I think the race is on between the incumbent healthcare organizations that do have unique data assets but should learn more about AI and embrace these technologies versus the new entrants, everything ranging from the small startups to the large internet companies. So one area where we've seen the deployment of AI is in self-driving car technology. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. How soon do you think we're going to see the mass deployment of fully autonomous cars on our streets? Self-driving is one example where having the right public-private partnerships is essential for both the initial deployments as well as the subsequent scale-up. In a lot of industries, there are outcomes that we want. We want safe self-driving cars. We want safe AI-powered healthcare. We want AI to have certain effects to make finance more efficient. And there are also outcomes we don't want. We don't want dangerous cars or dangerous drones or certain outcomes in the financial markets. So countries with the regulators that serve the right public-private partnerships will enable these technologies to go to market sooner as well as see more innovation in their local ecosystems. So I'm seeing encouraging progress in self-driving globally, but there's still a lot of work left, both on the technology side as well as on the regulatory side, in order to see these efforts scale up. And just on the pure technology, there seems to have been a bit of a retreat in terms of the promises that companies are making. Some of the most enthusiastic advocates of self-driving cars suggest that they might be further in the distance than they had originally thought. Is that right? Do you think we are seeing a recalibration of expectation? One of the challenges with AI broadly in self-driving, but in other industries as well, is that in the early immature days of technology, predictions are hard to make. I find today for executives, one of the hardest but most important things to do is to have finely calibrated judgment about what AI can and cannot do. Because even though AI can do a lot of very valuable things, it's also not panacea. And a lot of things today's AI technology simply cannot do. So in the past, I did see automotive CEOs stand on stage and announce roadmaps for self-driving that, frankly, even their own engineers at the time they were making announcement knew were unrealistic. But this is a lesson that I think is important for multiple industries. When a technology is immature, I've also seen executives announce roadmaps for building chatbot products that I thought were unrealistic. And this is actually why recently I created a course, AI for Everyone, on Coursera, which is targeted to business leaders to help a non-technical audience better understand what AI can and cannot do so that in the future we can have business leaders take AI for Everyone and have better judgment about what types of projects to start and what types of projects may not really be possible given today's technology. And what you're saying about self-driving cars is that even when we solve the technological challenges, we're still going to have to work on all the social, the legal, the insurance sides of the industry in order for full adoption to take place. And that could be many years away. I think the broad societal-wide adoption of technologies like self-driving cars, but again, also AI in healthcare, 
AI for drone traffic optimization. It will be a process. Now, there are a lot of wild dystopian fears about AI as well, most particularly that we're all going to succumb to the evils of some super intelligence or rogue AI that is going to threaten our existence. Now, you've said worrying about super intelligence is like worrying about overpopulation on Mars. It's massively in the distance if it's ever going to come about. Why are you so confident that we can dismiss fears of super intelligence? Oh, you know, one day perhaps Mars will be overpopulated and there'll be all these poor children dying on Mars because the cities are so crowded. And I don't want to seem heartless because I do care about all these children suffering on Mars. It's just that we're so far away from that today, I find it difficult to productively work on that problem. I wouldn't dismiss concerns, but when we may be hundreds of years away from building artificial general intelligence, I find it difficult to productively work on that myself. Having said that, I think as a society, it's not necessarily a bad thing if we have one or two researchers thinking about, you know, problems. It might not even be a bad thing if a few researchers publish papers about what to do about the planet Mars when it's overcrowded. I don't think that's a negative thing at all. But I think some of the um, overhype about these fears distracts society, distracts government and business and academic leaders from focusing on the more urgent and I would say for now much more important problems. The rise of AI would create tremendous value, but there are short-term challenges we need to address as well. Martin Ford wrote a very interesting book called Architects of Intelligence in which you were interviewed and many of the other kind of leading AI experts and quite a few of them have a different take from you on this issue. They do think it's worth worrying about the control problem now because it's only a matter of two decades or so that we might achieve the superintelligence. What do you think they're missing? I don't think anyone today has a clear path to building artificial general intelligence, unless someone has access to secret AI technology that I just don't know about. AI does raise important challenges I think we must address today. For example, AI being automation on steroids will create job displacements. And in fact, even if only half the tasks in a present job are automated away, they may not lose their job, but it will create downward pressure on wages. And so I think whether or not the wealth we're creating is fairly distributed and how to maybe provide the educational resources to help those whose jobs are displaced is I think one of the most urgent things AI should address. There are important questions about fairness and bias that I think is our duty to incorporate into the AI algorithms. And so ethics in AI is absolutely critical in the sense of making sure we treat people well and fairly. And finally, I think AI and the rise of the internet is creating unprecedented levels of concentration of power where because software and tech and AI has infected or is infecting almost every other industry, we're now creating winner-take-most or winner-take-all dynamics in many other industries. What do we do about that? How do we counter that concentration of power? I think that the government has an important role to play to think through what is the right systems of regulations to manage an economy in which multiple industries are seeing a rise of winner-take-most dynamics. And these dynamics are driven because a single tech company, and I don't mean software tech, it could be a company that delivers great agricultural technology or great healthcare technology, is in a much better position to license that to many farmers or to many healthcare providers. And that concentration of data, which the internet enables, followed by AI, which enables one company to process huge amounts of data, is creating a concentration of wealth, which I think is an issue that society should debate to make sure that even as we create tremendous wealth, that this wealth is 
shared in a fair way. And you're not, as I understand it, a fan of unconditional basic income, but you do believe in conditional basic income. Can you explain what you mean by that? The intent behind unconditional basic income is very well-meaning, but I don't think it is the best way to drive the outcomes we want. So if we pay everyone unconditional basic income, I worry that this will increase the number of people that are trapped in careers that maybe don't lead anywhere. You know, traditionally, the waiter and waitressing jobs, and more recently, the rise of the gig economy jobs. I think it would be better for society if we provide conditional basic income, where we do pay someone if they're unemployed and need that social safety net. But the condition can be that we expect you to study and learn because this increases the odds that you can gain the skills you need to re-enter the workforce to contribute back to the tax base that's paying for all this. AI and technology is displacing jobs, it's automating tasks and through that displacing jobs. But there's so many industries where we just cannot find enough people to do important work. We can't find enough wind turbine technicians, we can't find enough healthcare workers, can't find enough teachers in a lot of countries. And if only we can reschool individuals, I think there's a lot to be said for the dignity of work. And if conditional basic income can incentivize people to keep on learning, we can help people re-enter the workforce and contribute back to society while also you know, earning a living for themselves and their family. Now, one argument, I guess, is that technology is too important to be left just to the technologists, that we need to have a far broader societal political debate about how we deploy AI and one of the arguments I think that was made at the time of the opening of the MIT Schwarzman Computing School not so long ago was that we need bilinguals, people who understand both the world of technology and also of political science and social science and culture. Is that right, do you think? Do we need to have a far broader debate about the purpose of technology? Yeah, I think it was Raphael Reif that said that, and I agree with him, and I'd go even further. AI is transforming every industry. So I think we need not just people that understand the social science and AI. We need people that understand agriculture and AI. We need people to do work at the intersection of finance and AI, healthcare and AI, and all of these different industry sectors. Maybe one thing that's not widely appreciated is that AI people like me, we can't do it by ourselves. And we need subject matter experts in all of these different disciplines working with AI experts. One example is that my group at Stanford University has AI experts like me working with medical doctors from the Stanford School of Medicine to work together to do projects that neither doctors by themselves nor AI experts by ourselves can do. While AI experts can learn a bit about healthcare and healthcare experts can learn a bit about AI, and we should keep on doing that. I think in the short term, though, it's very difficult for someone like me to become a doctor or learn everything that one of my medical school partners knows. And so these cross-functional teams are much more efficient at solving these problems. And what I'd like to do is to have that take place on steroids, where subject matter experts in all of these industries that are being transformed by AI should partner with AI experts to develop meaningful projects together. One of the reasons I created AI for Everyone on Coursera is also that I hope people in all of these different industries can learn just a little bit about AI. Even non-technical people can learn just a little bit about AI because AI is a general purpose technology that almost transcends industries. And so if individuals, leaders in these industries can learn just a little bit about AI, 
uh, increase their effectiveness at identifying or partnering with AI teams to do this valuable work. So it sounds as though we all ought to be following your courses on Coursera. Yes, well, I think to business leaders that want to embrace AI, AI for Everyone is the course that I created. That was my best attempt at teaching people outside AI how to think about and potentially embrace it. And it is truly empowering a lot of entrepreneurs to enter this field, isn't it? I was talking to a Swedish entrepreneur the other day who had followed a lot of online courses on AI and was using it to found an edtech company. So it, it is in that sense a democratizing technology, isn't it? I think both Coursera and, and my team, DeepLearning.ai, was creating some of these courses on Coursera is excited about letting this knowledge get out there because the world has such a massive shortage of AI talent today. And with the rise of electricity, we built this global workforce of electrical engineers. With the rise of AI, for it to reach the full potential, we will need easily many, many millions of AI engineers all around the world. Just can't find enough AI engineers anywhere. And I think online education provided by you know, Coursera, DeepLearning.ai, teams like that is crucial for helping build up this global AI workforce. All right, wonderful. Thank you very much, Andrew. Thank you, John. We're taking a short break, but we'll be back next month. In the meantime, thank you for all your emails commenting on the show. Please continue to let us know what you think or make suggestions by emailing us at tectonic at ft.com. And if you're not already a subscriber and would like to discover more FT content, take a look at our subscriber offers at ft.com forward slash offer. Tectonic is produced by Fiona Simon.